using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it'll be page 878. For everyone else, it's probably the next to last page in your Bible. Revelation 21. Now, we here who live in the lower Hudson Valley live in the long shadow of New York City. Over the years, I've lived in several world-class cities, and, and I've also lived out, of the or out in the country. But, but even out there in the country, I've always found that life was to some extent oriented toward a nearby city. For example, I grew up in the boondocks of northern Pennsylvania, but we'd regularly travel the 30 minutes or so that it took to go to the nearby city of Scranton to um, go to the mall or to uh, do our shopping um, or to go to a movie. And, and as country kids, we would look to New York City for fashion and for entertainment. We'd look to Pittsburgh for football back in the 80s. We'd look to Philadelphia for baseball. Not me, I was a Yankees fan, but everyone else. <laughs> I just made some friends and some enemies, okay. <laughs> well, life for most people, for better or worse, is in some way oriented toward a city. And this was especially true for the first readers of John's letter of Revelation. They were city folks. They were living in seven of Asia Minor's leading cities. And, and like all first century people living in the Mediterranean world, they all lived within the orbit and the influence of the one great city of that day, the city of Rome. So today we're going to think about cities and about God's perspective on cities. And if you read your Bible from cover to cover, you discover that city building began as a bad thing. If you read the book of Genesis, a building a city represented turning away from reliance on God to, to human determination and to hubris. Cain, for example, after he killed his brother Abel, went out and built the city. Later, God judged and scattered the proud city of Babel with its tower that reached up to the heavens. But as you continue to read the biblical story, we see that, that God has done with cities what he's done with many other human expressions of sin. And that is that God has taken them up and, and, and that God redeems them and incorporates them into his plan, giving them the potential to become something good and beautiful. In the Old Testament, we see God did this with the city of Jerusalem. And in today's passage, we see that God will ultimately do it with the ultimate home for God's people, the New Jerusalem. Now, if you don't like cities, don't despair that you're doomed to live in a city for all eternity. Because most interpreters agree that what we have in Revelation 21 and 22 is not a guided tour of our new home by a real estate agent, but rather an imaginative and symbolic pastiche of biblical images by a poet-theologian, which tries to communicate to us something of, of a reality which we cannot presently imagine or take in. So what this, set of, or what this um, description of the New Jerusalem is then is, is a set of glasses which, when we put them on, begin to reform our imagination about who we are, about what matters in the world, about how God feels about us, about what's really worth living for, and about where it's all headed. 
All right, well, before we look at the city itself, let me briefly put the last two chapters of Revelation, which we've read a good portion of this morning, in the context of the whole letter. And there are, of course, many different ways that people interpret the book of Revelation. If you were here last Sunday and the Sunday before, you heard two very different approaches. And CBC is the kind of church where, as a church, we don't take an official position on how or when the end times will happen. And within our congregation and among those who speak at CBC, there's various views and perspectives on that issue as there are on many different issues. Just to be upfront about my working conviction, it's that since Revelation, and can we have the next slide? Mickey, thanks. Um, was originally written to these seven churches in seven cities in the first century, Asia Minor, that we should seek to understand how those first readers understood the book before we seek to understand it for ourselves today. When we look at the book of Revelation with this perspective, we quickly realize that the first readers were living in the Roman Empire, and they were living in the Roman Empire at a time when persecution against them from the Roman authorities was heating up. And that Revelation is therefore the original tale of two cities. For its first readers, Revelation presents a contrast between the great city of Rome, which Revelation calls Babylon the Great, and the New Jerusalem, the final dwelling place of God and his people. Further, it was common at that time to personify cities as women, much like pilots do with their airplanes or captains do with their ships. And so Revelation personifies the city of Rome, Babylon the Great, as a great prostitute riding on a scarlet beast the power of the Roman Empire, full of abominations and adulteries. And by contrast, Revelation personifies the new Jerusalem as the pure bride of the Lamb, who's Christ, beautifully dressed for her husband. Two cities, two women. And the question the book of Revelation challenges us with is which city do we call our own? Which woman do we identify with? Now, for the original readers of Revelation, this was a straightforward question because they felt the temptation and the pressure to, to benefit from Rome's economic prosperity, to be awed by Rome's military might, to, to depend on Rome's military protection, and to give in to worship Rome's emperor, the Caesar himself, which they were being pressured to do. But for us, we need to do some translating and reapplying because Rome is gone. It's fallen, just like Revelation predicted it would. But ever since, new Babylons, new prostitutes have been filling in to take its place. Richard Baucom, who's written the best book that I know on how to read Revelation, identifies these new Babylons with the human tendency to idolatry, which consists in absolutizing aspects of this world. In other words, the deification of military and political power, the beast, and economic prosperity, Babylon. Balcom's referring to the way a city or a nation or a corporation can begin as providing good functions, such as, as protection and stability and rule of law and economic sustenance for people. After all, that's how the Apostle Paul refers to Rome in, in the book of Romans, chapter 13. He tells his readers to obey the Roman authorities because they're servants of God, established by God for the good of the people. 
And that's in around 57 AD that Paul says that. But, but by the time John writes the book of Revelation, maybe 40 years later, Rome has changed. It's become a beast. Over time, a city or, or a nation or a corporation can grow in its power and its influence to the point where it becomes beastly and adulterous. Self-important and arrogant and unjust and inhumane and oppressive. Its own self-perpetuation, its, its military power and its economic well-being become more important than all other, all other considerations. Until you get to the point where the destruction and the suffering of some people in order to maintain the military dominance or the economic prosperity of other people become necessary evils instead of just plain evils. And the book of Revelation challenges us as disciples of Jesus Christ to be vigilant. To honestly look at all the great powers around us and to continually ask the question, when are these powers ceasing to just perform a good function? And when are they beginning to become beastly as well? And we've got to, we've got to honestly ask that question about our cities and about our economic system and about our government and about our military establishment. And if the possibility that the land we love could become beastly offends us, and, and so we refuse to honestly ask that question, then that's a good indication that we've begun worshiping the beast already instead of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, who holds all things in his hands. So that's Revelation's challenge to us. And so as we saw two weeks ago, part of the purpose of the book of Revelation is to give us, where are they, another set of glasses to wear. Oh, I can't see anything through these things. And, and my sermon notes are all in 3D now. But the book of Revelation intends to, to purge and to cleanse our imaginations from the powerful and the deceptive views of reality that the Babylons of the world would feed us. And, and to remake our imagination so that we can see with our minds and feel with our hearts what true reality really is. That's why Revelation ends with this grand and captivating picture of God's city. To, to counter and to compete with the ideologies that the cities, the Babylons of this world present us with about how wonderful and all important they are. And so this picture of the new Jerusalem is a gift. It's a gift because truth be told, we love Babylon too much. I know I do. Because all around me, Babylon is in the newspaper, it's on the internet and the TV and, and the movies and especially the commercials. Giving me a false view of what Babylon is really like. Uh, clouding my view of reality, keeping me from seeing things as they really are. You know, Mother Teresa once said, she said, I don't read the newspaper or watch TV. That way I can see what is really going on. And there's a lot of truth to that. Well, the book of Revelation is meant like corrective lenses to help us see more clearly. It shows us a new city, the city that 
that the book of Hebrews talks about. When in Hebrews 11, it speaks to those living by faith who only saw the things promised to them from a distance and admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And then Hebrews continues, people who say such things shows, show that they were looking for a country of their own. They're, they're longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Well, for the rest of our time this morning and for all of next Sunday as well, let's focus on this city. Let's remember why it's worth waiting for and why the cities of this world can't hold a candle to it. To do this, I want to focus this week on what is not in the city. And then next Sunday, we'll look at what is there in the city. Okay, so what is not present in the New Jerusalem? There are seven not theirs that we see. In these chapters. First, verse 4 there are no more tears, no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain in the city. I know for many of us who've been through the dark valleys of suffering and grief, we hold on to this hope, don't we? No more painful goodbyes, no more broken hearts, no more funerals, no more. Divorces or fights or breakups. No more cancer diagnoses. No more chronic pain. What other city can promise such, such hope? What other city can heal broken relationships? Can, can take away our pain in a healthy way? Can, can even bring back our deceased loved ones? What other city? But the new Jerusalem can because God is present in that city to comfort, to console, to heal. Isn't verse 4 tender? God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Second, not there in the city. Verse 6. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. There will be no more thirst in the city. And it's not because Gatorade is going to have an exclusive distribution contract in the New Jerusalem. But rather, it's because our deepest human longings will finally be satisfied. Our, our thirst for love and acceptance. Our thirst to matter to someone. Our thirst for meaning and for a life which counts and has purpose. We're thirsty people, aren't we? When we slow down enough to pay attention to what's going on inside of us, we, we know what Tom Brady, star quarterback of the, the New England Patriots, expressed well in an interview with 60 Minutes in 2005. He remarked, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Thirst. We're all thirsty. Even those of us who know Jesus, the water of life, get thirsty. I mean, I'm still thirsty. I'm thirsty for life. I'm thirsty for God because while I know Jesus, I don't know him nearly well enough. And I'm not fully always in his presence yet. But when I get to that city, when we get to that city, we will finally have no more thirst. And that's something no other human city can offer. I mean, New York, for instance, calls this the thirsty to herself. Those thirsty for fame, 
Those thirsty for career success, thirsty for excitement, thirsty for fun. As Alicia Kings, or Keys sings in Jay-Z's Empire State of Mind. New York, concrete jungles where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do. These streets, were made to, or these streets will make you feel brand new. Big lights will inspire you. But New York can't fully make good on these promises, can it? And even when, when she does, it, it's, it's not enough. We're still thirsty. New Yorkers are still thirsty. But the New Jerusalem is different. In that city, our thirst will finally be fully satisfied. Third, no more in the city. No more sea, 21.1. And no more night, 22.5. I used to be really bummed that there would be no more, ocean, no more sea because I love the ocean. But then I realized that John is being theological here. As we saw two weeks ago in the Bible, the sea represents the brooding forces of chaos which threaten our world. And night, likewise, represents the forces of darkness. At the first creation, God restrained these malevolent forces. God spoke into the world in Genesis 1, which was all dark and it was a watery, brooding, chaotic deep. And God said, let there be light. And God separated the light from the darkness. And then God said, let ground, dry ground appear. And, and God caused the dry ground to come out of this chaotic sea. And, and God set boundaries that the sea could not cross to provide a protective environment for people to live and grow and flourish in. But in the new creation, God will do one step better than restraining the chaos and the darkness. God will forever banish them altogether from his creation. In the New Jerusalem, there will be no more sea, no more chaos, no more tsunamis, no more hurricanes, no more earthquakes, no more oil spills, no more terrorists blowing up skyscrapers, no more drive-by shootings, no more riots and demonstrations turned deadly, no more fires, no more car crashes, no more craziness. And there will be no more night. Because God is always present in, in that city to be its light. No more darkness. No more fear. No more things going bump in the night. No more prowlers or hidden terrors. No more fumbling and groping. No more hidden secrets eating at us from the inside. In the light of God and of the Lamb, all is revealed. All is light. All is safe. All is healed. Now what earthly city can offer us that? Okay, fourth no more in the city. There will be no more curse, 22.3. We live in a world which is not as it should be. We all sense it, right? Things are harder than they should be. Weeds grow in our gardens and in our lawns. Our bodies break down and die. Our relationships strain and sometimes break. Our, our lives are full of stress. We work so hard and we see so little results sometimes. The opening story of the Bible after God creates the world explains why this is so. That It explains in Genesis 3 that, that the first humans rebelled against God, thus bringing God's curse on the first creation. Not only does life not work right anymore, but we all experience separation and alienation from God. 
But in the New Jerusalem, all of that badness will come undone. God will overturn the curse. All will be well. All will be whole. All will be as it was meant to be. And God will smile on us again. And, and we'll relate easily and freely. In what other city can we escape the curse? Fifth no more in the city. There will be no more temple. Chapter 21, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place of God's presence. The temple was holy and, and special and pure and everywhere else was common and secular and there was this divide between the two. That's because God was in the temple. And in the New Testament, God has now made us his temple. And, and so God has come to be present and to dwell among his people and to make us holy and special and pure. But in the New Jerusalem, God's holy, pure, special presence will not be limited to one building or to one group of people among many, but rather the whole city among, uh, or along with all of those in it will become the place of God's presence. The city and its people. And this is powerfully communicated by the dimensions John gives for this city. It's 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 wide, and 12,000 high. Now, 12,000 stadia is about 1,300 miles. That's from here to Dallas, Texas. Can you imagine a city that big and that tall? I mean, Mount Everest, the world's highest peak, rises less than six miles above sea level. But 1,300 miles high? What's John trying to communicate to us here? Well, the key is in the numbers. Numbers in the book of Revelation are generally not statistics, but rather symbols. 12,000, for instance, is the number 10, or 12, the number for God's people, multiplied a thousand times. A thousand being one of the biggest numbers people could think of in Bible times. They use the word thousand like we use the word bazillion today. <laughs> kind of an indefinite, huge. 12 times 1,000. How big is that? It's God's people multiplied about a bazillion times. Which means either that there will be a lot of God's people in the New Jerusalem, or that there will be plenty of room for all of God's people, or both. The New Jerusalem won't be cramped. It won't be crowded. God's not skimping on it. Space will be plenteous for the multitude of God's people that in his grace he is drawing to himself. But there's more. The New Jerusalem will also be a perfect cube, 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. Who ever heard of a city like that? Well, there's one more object in the Bible that's a perfect cube, or one other object in the Bible that's a perfect cube. Does anyone know what it is? The Holy of Holies of God's temple. That's what this whole city is. The whole thing is the innermost, holiest part of God's dwelling. It's the inner sanctum. In the New Jerusalem, God's people dwell with God in God's very dwelling place. 
We'll see this more next Sunday. Just about every aspect of John's description of the New Jerusalem communicates that God is present there in and through and around and above and below this city. To dwell in this city is to dwell in God. And so to experience life like we now cannot even imagine. What other city can make a boast like that? That brings us to the sixth not there in the city. Verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they are not there. And verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, but rather are consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is the second death. And then verse 27. Only those will enter it whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because God is present in this city and because the whole city is pure and holy and because there's no darkness there, no chaos, no evil, not everyone can be in this city. In fact, not everyone will want to be in this city. Of course, this is no new news. The whole New Testament repeatedly warns that it's possible to resist and to reject the good thing that God is doing in this world through Jesus Christ and that those who reject it will have no share in it. But while in this present world, it's presently this swirled mix of good and evil that we all enjoy, whether we're, we're uh, a follower of God or not, the rain... Uh, God doesn't shine his rain. He pours out his rain on the good and the evil alike. So we all enjoy this mix of good and evil. But, but the day will come when all the good in this world and in this life will be gathered up into the new Jerusalem. And all the bad will be gathered together in what Revelation calls the lake of fire. And so for those who are not in the city, the lake of fire will be all that's left for them. So who exactly will not be in the city? Well, interpreters point out that that the list that John gives in verse 8 include many of the characteristic sins in Revelation of those who follow the beast and Babylon, the prostitute, instead of the lamb who writes the names of his followers in the book of life. Now remember, for Revelation's first readers, this would be those who lived like the Romans did, who went along with the Roman Empire's way of, uh, of life. Instead of... Um, living in the counterculture reality of, of Jesus and how he called his followers to live. Note specifically the, the first and last items on the list that John gives us in verse 8. Often first and last items are, are carefully chosen to draw special attention to those things. And in this case, it's, it's to the cowardly and to the liars. Now, cowardice and lying, are those really the two worst possible qualities people can have? Not in and of themselves, but remember that Revelation's first readers, remember what they're up against. We talked about it two weeks ago. They're about to be faced with a choice. Either take a pinch of incense, offer it on an idol or on an altar, and confess Caesar is Lord, or remain faithful to their first conception or confession, Jesus is Lord, and take the consequences, be what they may. And for those who confess that Jesus is Lord, to to worship Caesar too is to be a coward and a liar. As is to go along in the Roman way and all the other matters on the list in verse 8. 
So Revelation is stretching out a tension between these two cities. It wants us to know that the stakes are high, that we cannot have both Babylon and the New Jerusalem. And that brings us to the final seventh not there in the city. Closed gates are not there. Verse 25. The city has gates, but it has no closed gates. There are gates to welcome people in, but there are no closed gates to keep people out. This suggests two things. First, this city is safe. Back in John's day, a city closed its gates at night for protection to keep dangerous people out. But in this city, there's nothing to fear. God is in control of all, and God is the city's protection. Second, this city is welcoming. Verse 12 says that over the open gates of the city are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. This suggests that no one is any longer excluded based on their ancestry or their ethnicity. Rather, verse 24 and 26, the kings of the earth bring their splendor into the city. And the glory and honor of the nations is brought in as well. This is a city for all people. There are no more boundaries no more divisions. No more inside groups and outside groups. As the songwriter Rich Mullins once put it, the color of your skin won't get you in or keep you out. Okay, so in conclusion, maybe as you've been listening to John's description of the city, you've been sensing what I've been sensing. And that is that much of what this city will offer is already offered to us in Jesus Christ. We as God's people are already on our way to the city. As Bible scholars like to put it, the new Jerusalem is already here, but not yet here fully. We're already comforted in our suffering. And we've already moved from death to eternal life. For Jesus is our comforter and he's the resurrection and the life. Our thirst is already being satisfied. For Jesus is the water of life who invites all the thirsty to come to him and to drink. Our chaos and our darkness are already being dispelled. For, for Jesus we know still storms. And he is the light of the world. The curse we experience in life is already being replaced by blessing and we have been reconciled to God for Jesus took the curse on himself on the cross. We already have no need to go to a temple because Jesus already dwells among us. Our gates are already open because Jesus is drawing all people from all nations to himself. In Jesus Christ, the new Jerusalem is already beginning to take shape among us, though it is not yet by any means fully arrived. So here's the challenge for us as CBC, as a church, as a gathering of God's people. As we wait for our place in that city which has not yet come, let's turn our backs on the Babylons of this world and let's seek to become the new Jerusalem, in every way that we already can. Because we, as Jesus' followers, are called to live the life of the future now in the power of the Holy Spirit.
to be continued next week. Let's pray. God, we try in some small, feeble way this morning to begin to open up our minds and our imaginations to take in something which, as the Apostle Paul said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. These things are way out of our league. We speak humbly about them, and we dare to dream what it will be like for you to make all things new. And in the meantime, I pray that you would lure our hearts away from the temptations and the pulls and the false propaganda of the Babylons of this world, which we love too much, to call us to be more faithful And may we continue to be what you're seeking to shape us into. May we be a small, already expression of the New Jerusalem now as we live in this world. Amen.